0: And welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to be talking about the Maid of Orléans, the patron saint of France. That is to say, Joan of Arc, in my opinion, one of the most interesting women in history. So I'd like to give a brief overview of kind of her life and death and why she's important. So gather around, everyone. And I shall tell you the tale of Joan of Arc. First, let's set the stage a little bit. Uh, Joan of Arc's story takes place in the early 15th century, so the early 1400s. Britain, or what is now known as England, uh, was originally, in ancient times, a Roman province. Now, they did leave uh, when the Roman Empire was kind of falling apart. And in the 700s, 800s, 900s, stuff like that, uh, Germanic peoples from the continent went over to uh, Britain. A lot of them were Saxons. And they warred and then eventually integrated with the native people that lived there called Angles. And they formed a people called the Anglo-Saxons. And in fact, the tribe that lived there gave their name to the island. Uh, The land of the Angles, the tribe that lived there, became Angleland. So, England. Anglo-Saxon England is pretty much the prototype, the foundation for modern Britain. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien was fascinated by this period. Actually, he based uh, the Kingdom of Rohan on Anglo-Saxon England. So. They lived like this for a few centuries until one of the most important events in English history and that is the Norman invasion. Now this happened in 1066 and there was a guy in northwestern France called William the Conqueror and he was a Norman. Now who were the Normans? The Normans were basically Vikings that went and uh, terrorized all over northern Europe but in France. A lot of them found the land uh, there so desirable that they settled down and integrated with the local Franks, like the the French people that lived there. And they became Normans, uh, which some historians speculate is just a version of the word Northmen. So in 1066, this guy uh, attacks from northwestern France and after a series of battles defeats the last Anglo-Saxon king of England, and establishes a kingdom in southern Britain, like the the lands of England. Why is this important? Well, if you fast forward to the time of Joan of Arc, so again, the early 15th century, it meant that now the King of England who was um, in power at the time, um, and that was Henry, Uh, basically now the kings of England still had a claim to France and this was um, it led to a conflict called the Hundred Years War uh, which is a little over a hundred years of warring between uh, England and France as to who would control France like France had its own native kings and and bloodlines uh, but the kings of England had a claim as well there was a peace treaty in 1420 that Pretty much disinherited the crown prince of France and uh, basically stated that King Henry V was the ruler of both England and France and his son Henry VI came to power in 1422. So definitely some conflict here. The uh, French guy that lost his claim was called Charles of Valois and Valois is uh, a famous line of French kings and uh, this will come into play later because this is Uh, One of the main conflicts, one of the main um, sticking points of the Hundred Years' War. So now, you know, we've briefly talked about Anglo-Saxon Britain and William the Conqueror and the conflict between the kings of England and France. And this is the world where we see the emergence of Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc was born in a town called Domremy Rémy in uh, northeastern France and she was born in the year 1412 and her birth name was Jeanne d'Arc, uh, or in English Joan of Arc. Uh, Jeanne is almost like the feminine form of Jean, like John in French, so you know the English equivalent could be anything from Jean or Joan or Joanna, uh, anything like that. Her father was Jacques Doc and he was a tenant farmer and Joan herself was uneducated, uh, poor peasant girl, uh, but despite this her mother was really religious. Uh, Isabel Romain was her mother and raised Joan to be really into religion and the Catholic faith and told her all the stories of Jesus and the apostles and the saints. So definitely very religious upbringing and, of course, this comes into play later. Like I said, at this time, France was tangled up in the Hundred Years' War with England. And one thing I wanted to mention is that not all of the French were um, united behind their their Crown Prince, um, you know, their in their opinion, their royal and rightful heir, uh, Charles of Valois. The English invading forces did have French allies, um, but a lot of them were these people called the Burgundians. And prior to the modern period in Western Europe, Burgundy was this kingdom that was that was a really big deal and was kind of a rival for England and France in the region. Like they had lands in like what you could say is Western Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, uh, Eastern France, stuff like this. So they're led by this guy, the Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good which is not like a really inspiring name, like you could have called him Philip the Mighty or something, but whatever, apparently he was good, so he's Philip the Good. Um, By this time, England had occupied much of northern France, and a lot of people actually fled uh, Joan of Arc's village because they were afraid uh, to live under the English. So Joan of Arc, aside from that, you know, uh, definitely peasant childhood, religious childhood, let's fast forward a little bit. Right around the age of 13, um, she began to hear voices. (laughs) So, she um, believed that this was God speaking to her, either directly or through angels. Uh, In the Catholic faith, traditionally angels, one of their many jobs, is they're the messengers of God. So, she believed she had a mission, like a sacred mission, a divine mission, a mission given to her by the Creator. And that was to save France by pushing out the English and to make sure that Charles of Valois, the you know, the rightful king, was installed upon the throne. So, imagine, you're this poor, illiterate, <laughs> peasant girl, and God's talking to you, telling you to uh, save the country, so, you know, no big deal, right? As um, part of this kind of sacred charge, uh, she took a vow of chastity, basically saying she's Never gonna have sex. Never gonna get married. Um, so in some ways, kind of aligning herself with like a nun-like or or priestly lifestyle. Uh, when she was 16, like her dad tried to uh, arrange a marriage for her. You know, it's like basically okay. You know, relax, come back to earth, uh, marry this boy. But she managed in convincing a local official, local court. Not to be forced to accept this. So she she stayed single and uh, basically stayed on her path, on her mission. Okay, so in May of 1428, Joan goes to a place called Vaucouleur. It's like this uh, stronghold, this kind of keep nearby. Uh, And there were a bunch of people there that were loyal to Charles. There's a guy there, the local magistrate. uh, Magistrate is just like a legal official or a judge or something. This guy's name was uh, Robert de Baudricourt. Initially, you know, refused to see her, refused to grant her request um, because she was requesting to go see the king. And he just didn't take her seriously. However, by this point, she did have a group of followers and apparently at the time in that region of France, there was a prophecy among the peasants that uh, France would be saved by a virgin. So he, um, he eventually granted her request, either because he believed her followers or he had a change of heart or he believed her. Uh, maybe, who knows, maybe he was just feeling bad that day. Maybe he was hung over. He's like, whatever, I don't want to deal with this. Uh, so he grants a request and Joan cuts her hair. Uh, short, uh, like a man, and she she dressed in men's clothes. And she undertakes this dangerous kind of commando-style infiltration movement through enemy territory. It took her 11 days to go through uh, enemy territory to get to this place called uh, Shino. I think it's pronounced Shino or Kino. And this is uh, where the crown prince was hanging out. He had a palace there. She meets him and she says uh basically relates the story of how she's been chosen by God and God is speaking to her and that he's the rightful king and she wants to make that happen. And she asks him uh for permission to lead the army and take them to Orléans uh which was a big important city which at the time was under siege uh from the English. Most of the king's kind of advisors, counselors, uh, generals uh, told him not to grant this request. Uh, They were saying things like, uh, you know, are you insane? This is an illiterate peasant girl. She's not a lord. She's not a general. She's not any kind of fighter or warrior. uh, And on top of everything, she's a female. So it's kind of like, how can you even take this seriously? There were a few reasons why... Charles kind of granted her request Um, if you read the story of Joan of Arc like there were one or two strange occurrences uh, at the time that were attributed to to miracles like there's a popular story that when she went to the court uh, Charles wanted to see if she was the real deal so he picked some guy and dressed him up in King's clothes and put him on the throne and Uh, Charles himself wore different clothes and hung out in the crowd, like the the courtiers, like the kind of crowd in the royal hall, uh, to see like, okay, if she's really chosen by God, then she'll come right up to me and and she won't fall for this deception, this ruse. And the story goes that that's exactly what happened. Joan entered the hall and could tell somehow, right away, that the guy on the throne was not the king and she walked right up to Charles and said, uh, you know, my king, my Dauphin, like, so um very interesting story uh you know whether or not it's true like we're we're not exactly sure so some of the more uh sources some of the sources that i've consulted like history.com or britannica or some of the more like that they, they just don't really include that story because i i guess the people who research those articles aren't really sure like they're trying to stick with what we know strictly but it is a very cool story um and a lot of people were like yes this is uh and miracle, like a miracle. In any case, like I said, all of the uh, all of the counselors and stuff around the king were were telling him, like, no, this is this is insane. But for whatever reason, Charles says, okay, uh, I'll put you in charge of the army um, because maybe he had a change of heart and and realized that hmm, like maybe she is chosen by God. So in March of fourteen twenty nine. Joan leaves at the head of the army. And how cool is this? She was riding a white horse wearing white armor. Like, that's just awesome. <laughs> like I'm surprised she wasn't followed by doves and there was just a choir constantly singing around her wherever she went, but that's that's just very cool. It's very, um, you know, with her hair cut short and she's dressed like a and she had this like white armor and stuff, just a very kind of imposing uh, heroic figure. A lot of the French people Uh, If they hadn't rallied behind her before, like, you see this person, you're like, oh, that's impressive. She uh, led a number of, um, kind of attacks against the English forces who were allied, again, with the Burgundians. So it was kind of like this coalition army. And despite attacking, like, a fortified position uh, called a bastion, like, she managed to win and uh, drive them off. And they retreated across the uh, Loire River. It's a river that runs through France. This just blew people's minds, like nobody expected this to happen. Uh, Keep in mind, like by this point, the English forces, you know, a lot of these guys are veteran soldiers. The Burgundian forces, uh, veteran soldiers, they had morale on their side because they had been winning. And the thought that this illiterate peasant girl, who's not even 20 years old, rallied this French army that had been suffering from cripplingly low morale, it was kind of like their darkest hour. Uh, and somehow managed to win, like it was just incredible. Um, And again, a lot of people, this reinforced their belief that, oh, maybe this is the prophecy coming true. Maybe she uh, really was chosen uh, by God. So at this point, she says to the king, hey, uh, come with me. And uh, they made their way across enemy territories uh, again to this this town called Reem. Uh, R-E-I-M, I think it's pronounced reem or Rhyme. Uh, and that was kind of the traditional site of where the kings of France would be crowned, uh, like traditional coronation site for this line of French kings. And he was crowned there in July of 1429 as King Charles VII. Um, the fact that this is happening in May, July, just like a brief side note that I, I wanted to talk about is... In pre-modern warfare especially, um, and this is definitely a common thing in medieval warfare, the fighting season was traditionally in the summer between the planting and the harvest. Because a lot of the soldiers in these armies were called levies. So what is a levy? Uh, a levy is when a noble lord would basically conscript his peasants to fight. Uh, I think it comes from the French word leve, like to raise. So you would raise these these armies of peasant soldiers, but they were keenly aware that if they didn't want to lose a ton of money and if they didn't want the crops to suffer, these peasants had to be at home on the farm during the planting and the harvesting. Um, So you only had like a limited period when it when the weather was nice, you know, and these are in temperate climates where you do get snow like or cold weather. Uh, in the winter. You know, obviously ancient campaigns in, in the Middle East or North Africa and stuff is like is different. But in any case, that's just like a brief side note I, uh, I wanted to bring up. So here we are in July 1429. Joan tells the king, it's like, look, we've got them on the run. Uh, we have to push, push, push and retake Paris. But Charles uh, wasn't sure. Again, there were a bunch of counselors around him that still didn't trust Joan. Uh, For whatever reason, maybe they thought she was uh, a threat to their power because it's like, what's going to happen if the king starts listening to her instead of listening to us? Um, You know, and you might say like, well, but they were all French. Like, why weren't they all on the same side? Well, she was definitely from a different social class and her followers by and large were peasants. And a lot of these guys were lords. So maybe in that respect, a lot of their objectives and... um, a lot of their methods to achieve those objectives were not necessarily aligned. So in any case, uh, this kind of push to Paris that may have been successful uh, was not. So the Anglo-Burgundian forces, the English and the Burgundians, they fortified in Paris and um, the attack by uh, Joan, this happened in September, was, was pushed back. So maybe that's kind of like a great historical question, is like in July, if the king had listened to her, what might have happened? But uh, who knows? So here we are. uh, There's a winter between 1429 and 1430. Uh, Attack season, campaigning season kicks off again in the spring of 1430. Like I said, uh, because (laughs) especially in pre-modern times, keeping an army in the field in the winter was just insane. Uh, So the spring of 1430, this uh, Charles, the king, he orders Joan um, to go to the city of Compiègne. Uh, And this city was under attack by the Burgundians, and uh, they're gaining ground kind of in this area of the country. Here's where her story kind of uh, takes a tragic turn. So she goes to defend this town, and they're fighting outside uh, the walls, and the battle turns against the French, and the French forces retreat into the town's walls and gates, and she was knocked off her horse or thrown off her horse, and they were sealing the gates, and she wasn't able to make it back in time in the city. So they sealed the gates, either intentionally, you know, maybe there were guys working with the Burgundians that sealed the gates to trap her outside, or maybe it was unintentional. Like there was just chaos, and then they sealed the gates, and they realized, oh man, like we left her outside. Uh, but by that point, it was too late. So the, the Burgundians, these are the continental uh, allies of the english they took her captive and there was this big celebration and uh they take her to the castle of bouvroy which was um kind of commanded by this english general at the time and he was commanding it from rouen rouen is this like uh, city in uh, northwestern france like in uh, normandy Uh, which you know if you're familiar with world war ii or the d-day landings like you'll know where normandy is Uh, but i also mentioned the normans earlier in this episode and kind of like well that's where they came from (laughs) they came from normandy so think about that and we'll get to the last stage of her life in a minute And now we've come to the final stage of the story of the Maid of Orléans, Joan of Arc. The Burgundians, uh, like I said, handed her over to the English and she was put on trial. So, you know, to their credit, they didn't just like, you know, butcher her or execute her right away. But you kind of think to yourself, like, what kind of due process or legal sophistication was really there in the early 15th century? They held a trial for her, and they leveled approximately 70 charges against Joan of Arc, and these included things like witchcraft and heresy, um, because, like I said, she thought God was talking to her, and they were leveling the accusation that, no, that was actually the devil, and you were sent here by the devil to, uh, you know, lead the armies of our enemies and mislead people and just all sorts of uh, vile accusations and stuff like that. What's interesting is one of the charges that was um, brought forth against her that carried the most weight was that she dressed like a man. And that's just insane. Like... I mean, things like witchcraft and heresy, like I get it, but uh, I mean, again, in our modern world, you know, try not to judge these people too harshly, but it's just so interesting that that was like, you can imagine the prosecutor or whatever they had that was equivalent to a prosecutor be like, here she is charged with witchcraft, heresy, and there's like murmurs in the crowd and dressing like a man. And then just like people drop their wine goblets and stuff like that. So that's just, that's just nuts. Um, in addition to this, this coalition of the English and the Burgundians, they weren't trying just to destroy her reputation and execute her. They wanted to discredit this, this new French king, because that was obviously a threat to their power. If the French people rallied behind this king and it was a threat to their claims in France, especially Northern France, um, because the popular perception, and I think this is true, is that a lot of his, um, it's kind of like he is king because of her like uh he a lot of his um rise to power was due to her influence so because of this this kind of character assassination uh character assassination is a term you run into in politics and stuff when enemies of someone will it's like a smear campaign they'll try to destroy your reputation and stuff like that because she was accused of being a heretic and a witch Um, the French King started to distance himself, like no doubt persuaded by some of these same counselors and generals. So he didn't really try to negotiate for her release, um, either exchanging high profile prisoners that the French had taken or just paying in gold. Like he just didn't really try to do anything to save her, which is, which is crazy. Like, um, in may of 1431. So here we are, like she spent a year in prison. And the whole time she was under threat of execution. So imagine how stressful that is. Like every day you don't know if you're going to be executed. Um, She finally gave up and signed a confession. Part of the confession was like they forced her to deny that she had ever been uh, instructed by God or chosen by God or had any kind of uh, divine mission. Um, She may have had a change of heart because a few days later she... Uh, put on men's clothes again and and maybe recanted some of her statements and they gave her the death sentence because i don't know i mean i guess they were sick of her by this point and they realized that she was very valuable to them alive if she went back on everything she believed because then they could parade her in front of the french forces and be like see like she was a liar like she even admitted it but if she refuses to do that it's like well there's no real value to you being alive as a propaganda tool for us um they probably weighed the value of well if we execute her then maybe we'll turn her into a martyr but it's kind of like if she's alive maybe the french will fight harder to rescue her or maybe we're afraid that if she escapes somehow she'll lead the forces again um she showed us at orleans that you know she can lead an army so that's kind of just i'm giving you kind of maybe a little bit of the back and forth uh you know, that they weighed the arguments for and against giving her the death sentence. So, in any case, on the morning of May 30th, 1431, there's an old marketplace in Rouen, and they they parade her out, and uh, they tied her to the stake and burned her alive, uh, which is, I think, one of the worst ways to go. And she was only 19 years old. You know, the story of Joan of Arc is not a very long story. Like, she was only on Earth for 19 years, but she's one of those people that just made such a mark on history because of personal acts of heroism but also how they they fit into this grand historical kind of story the the story of france and the story of england um what the uh, english and the burgundians were afraid of uh, did come true so after she was executed her legend uh, spread across France, and uh, they everywhere people were talking about the Maid of Orleans and this this person that was chosen by God and, and stuff like that. Charles, the guy who didn't try to save her, uh, we do know that about 20 years later he ordered a new trial, and by that point the circumstances of the Hundred Years' War had changed. And uh, as a result of this trial, uh, he was the king still. He cleared her name, so. You know, maybe he was doing it for political reasons, or maybe he carried the guilt of this for 20 years. Like, we, we don't really know. You know, what do you think? Um, in 1909, so, you know, way long time later, you know, right in the 20th century, uh, the Pope at the time, Pope Pius X, uh, beatified her. So in the Catholic faith, uh, beatification is kind of like the stepping stone to becoming a saint. It's like you're a sacred person in the Catholic Church, but you're not a saint yet. Um, to become a saint, you have to be canonized, canonization. And this did happen 11 years later in 1920. Um, at that time, there was a new Pope, Pope Benedict the 15th, and he canonized her. And Joan of Arc by this point was like this legendary figure in French history. Uh, this kind of national savior, national liberator. Uh, A lot of countries have have a figure like this. Um, I like to think that maybe an accurate parallel would be for the Scottish people, like the Scots, like they have William Wallace. Um, Not just because this is a national liberator, but they also kind of emerged at roughly the same time period in history. Uh, And they both fought wars against medieval England, so... uh, You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I think that's a relatively close um, comparison. So, why... I mean, Joan of Arc... Like I said, it's... um, I think there's a historical debate as to what was the nature of her visions and uh, these messages that she was receiving from God. And there's like a few theories... Uh, One of the more kind of non-religious scholarly theories is that, uh, maybe even medical theories, is that she had some kind of mental illness. Uh, Maybe she had schizophrenia, which uh, she had visions and heard voices and stuff like that. And as a result of being raised in such a heavily religious uh, environment, atmosphere, that these visions and uh, these messages manifested themselves as something from god you know so it's kind of like you have this mental illness and then it gets refracted or filtered through this religious lens of early 15th century france and that's kind of what happened to joan of arc um if you're a more religious person uh you know there's definitely people that believe that no like she really was chosen by god to save the french people and her life is a series of miracles um, so, it, it, it really depends, you know, like it's uh, a lot of these historical figures, when you look back, it's hard to tell exactly what was going on in their brain, um, because oftentimes they didn't write things themselves. They didn't leave behind a journal saying, like, I'm Joan of Arc, and this is what I think about this, and this is what I did today. Uh, a lot of surviving records, especially in the pre-modern period, are written by other people who often for social political economic reasons whatever uh will either cut things out of the story or embellish parts of the story so um so we don't really know i mean the story that i've related in this episode is kind of like the commonly accepted sequence of events um i've tried not to go off track too much and i've tried to just like Present a basic skeleton of her story, but I, but I definitely think if you're if you're curious, there's a lot to read uh, about Joan of Arc, uh, who again is just this interesting, mythical kind of legendary figure uh, in the history of France. One last thing I'd like to share before we close out for today is that the trial that decided her fate, her life and death, it's interesting that the judges of this trial were actually French. Um, they weren't English. Like this uh, wasn't a court uh, put on by the the English where they could be accused of obvious bias. They found French because not all of the French were allied with king charles like a lot of them were working with the english invaders for whatever reason i mean maybe it was in their their self-interest or whatever the two judges at her trial there was this guy pierre cochon the bishop of beauvais and jean Lemaitre, maitre uh, the vice inquisitor of france and the reason why i'm bringing this up is because some historians have speculated that that's one of the reasons why they came down so hard on her was that one of the central things of the trial, one of the most serious charges against her is that she claimed that God was speaking to her directly. And a lot of the clergy present, including these two guys, kept saying, no, like, we are the priests, we are the clergy, we are the religious class. Uh, God speaks to the people through us. Um, Like, we have this almost like a monopoly on, on talking to God. Like he, you know, he speaks to us. He doesn't speak to common people directly and she just kept she just stuck to her guns saying no like he speaks to me directly so some historians have speculated that this was a threat to their power like uh, a kind of a threat to their monopoly on the voice of God like being the speakers of the Lord so just an interesting thing that I wanted to share with you uh, before we close out for this uh, for this episode So, in any case, I hope you found it interesting and fun. This has been Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bite-sized-history-podcast at gmail.com. And once again, thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye.